Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're joined by a very special guest. It's Dr. Chris Donnelly. He's a linguist, and boy, do we need help in that arena. So we are so <laughs> glad to have him on the show. Dr. Donnelly's specializations are syntax, discourse, and linguistic typology. And his main interest is in documenting endangered languages. So those include Katso, which is spoken in a single village in southwestern China, and Dawoodi, which is spoken in two villages in northern Pakistan. So thanks for talking with us, Chris, and thank you for explaining things to us. <laughs> thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, so happy to ah. be here. Yay! Um, and we didn't even have to ask you to say that. Um, <laughs> I talk about the podcast all the time. I tell all my students. Uh, uh, oh, great. we don't even pay you or anything. Gosh. I don't know that it actually translates to any listeners, but I'm out yeah, there talking. Well. So speaking of you having students, um, let's ah. jump right in. Um, so what was your educational trajectory and how did you decide that linguistics was was right for you? Well, it's a long and windy path. I'm not sure trajectory is the right word. It's more like a sign curve. Um, I've had several <laughs> career changes along the way with lots of schooling because I like school. So when in doubt, go back to school. Um, so yeah, I had it, sure. but to not drag it all out, it would be a mini multi-part podcast. We did that, but um, I worked in the corporate world for 20 years, although I was always interested in languages and culture. And even as an undergrad, I studied several different languages. Oddly, no one mentioned linguistics to me when I was doing all of that. Um, so didn't know about it. Went and worked in the corporate world. Then after 20 years said, mm, you know what, I'd like to do something that's more fun. So I thought, I'll just go back and get a PhD in linguistics, you know, like you do. Um, never studied linguistics, but I'd actually been doing a lot of reading and felt like it was the thing to do. And particularly catalyzed by the um, language endangerment crisis. So went back to, um, actually went to the school where I am now to get my master's, then went to PhD program. And I just got my PhD about five years ago. So now I'm teaching and, and, and doing research. So that's the strange trajectory, not the typical trajectory. And not one I recommend, but it's worked <laughs> well for me. Yeah, awesome. That's what we hear more often than not, actually, is I think people kind of expect that Often scholars know exactly what they want to do and they get there directly. But actually, pretty much everyone we've talked to on this show has said, well, I started out with this, but then actually turns out I didn't like that or I found this other thing that I liked more, which is very reassuring. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it, I, people thought I was crazy and some still do um, for, for leaving the corporate world to go into academia. It's not. <laughs> right. It's it's not a that's there's no pay increase involved yeah, in that career you're not, jump. But. You're not going into academia for the for the money <laughs> no. and the glory. What? No. Actually, Wait, what? The, one of what the do you mean? I mean, my last job, I was working 80 hours a week and on call 24-7 and just like oh, blah. so working in academia seemed like retirement. 
right? <laughs> it just it was great. So it's like come for the education, but stay for the lifestyle. I love it. Oh, it's great. So linguistics. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as we've discovered, as Amber and I have discovered, it's a huge field. And so I mentioned this a little bit when we introduced you, but what is your particular corner of that field? And then also more broadly with linguistics, what types of questions about humans can anthropologists address? Right. Yeah. Linguistics is a huge field. There's probably a couple dozen subfields, depending on how you slice and dice it. Most linguists, why? <laughs> that's too many. Yeah. Most linguists wisely. Like one just, of the subfields of anthropology. Like this is. Yes, yeah, it's a sub sub. Well, yeah. Sub. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, although maybe many linguists wouldn't admit to that, but I agree with you. Um, so <laughs> most linguists wisely just specialize in one or two subfields. Um, I, on the other hand, <laughs> am, am, I consider myself a generalist. So that means that I need to be able to competently dog paddle through a whole lot of those subfields. Um, because to undocument endangered languages, you need to be able to deal with every part of language. Um, but there are definitely fields, subfields that I don't really know anything about. Computational linguistics, I, I, I know what it is, but I, you, you'll never catch me doing it. Um, so, so, so there's lots to be, to be examined there. And I dabble in a lot of those things, but I look at natural language, like just like people talking in every day, like, what does that tell us about language? So I'm looking for structure through that lens. So I'm interested in sound and the pieces of words and the words and how that gets packaged together, that kind of stuff. Um, if you believe, so all of that can be analyzed and are studied individually, like sound systems of the world, of the world's languages is something that people look at, how works around the world, how grammar works around the world is something that people look at. But um, I happen to agree with you, linguistics is part of or re closely related to anthropology and archaeology. So I'm very interested in how language sits into culture and is informed by and also informs culture. So you can look at all, I mean, there's all different levels of things you can look at uh, through the linguistics lens. Okay. So what are some ways that language does influence culture and, and how we experience the world around us? Like, are there sort of go-to examples that you use in your classes with your students, or are there things that you've kind of discovered for yourself um, through your, your field research? Well, it's, this is a big amorphous topic and, and it's also, there are controversial parts of this discussion. Oh, um, oh. yeah, I thought you'd like that. Um, <laughs> er, early, you know, like in the forties and thirties and forties, um, people thought that maybe language might actually limit or control the way you see the world, mm -hmm. like what language you speak. Um, oh. we now know that's not true. Um, because of, first of all, lots of, a lot of our brain does things without language. We do a lot of thinking without language. You do not need language to do a lot of the thinking that happens every day. Um, but certainly culture shapes language and then language. So culture sort of provides a frame for language and then language influences, maybe influences, maybe a bit strong, but it adds to the mix about how we look at the world and how we want to talk about things in the world. Um, and so here's an example, um, that I can think of on the top of my head. So some languages have what we call evidential systems. What that means is 
Every verb that you use has to have a special particle to explain how you know that that event occurred. Right. So I just can't say something like the dog ran down the street. You have to say the dog ran down the street because I saw it. The dog ran down the street because I heard him. The dog ran down the street because my neighbor told me. The dog ran down the street because I can see the paw prints and I can deduce that that's what's happened. Or and that's include that's encoded in the yeah, words. Yeah, that's encoded. That's a grammatical piece that has to be in every sentence, Whoa. right? So English doesn't do that, obviously. No, no, we can. Neither does my brain. We can. I mean, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you may question me about how I know, and I can tell you, or I may even right. volunteer. Oh, I heard that so and so and so, or my neighbor's, you know, husband told me blah blah blah. But it's not obligatory. But some languages you need that in there. Every sentence must have that proof. And of course, that only comes about because that society somehow decided that was a good thing to have. I mean, they don't consciously decide those things, but they start doing it more and more. It's a social value. It's it's part of how they interrelate. It's part of their etiquette, right? So that that must be there. And and then because that happens in the culture, the language then develops a way to make that a permanent thing that you got to always say. What's interesting is that, I mean, certainly, again, every culture can describe those notions to kind of add their proofs to what they're saying. But there's been some research even that people who grow up speaking one of those languages and then also learn to speak uh, a language that doesn't do that tend to not trust the speakers of languages that don't do it as much. Hmm. Because they just see those people as Ah, they talk all the time, but you don't know where they got it in this information. Um, okay. Suddenly, the the concept of the internet has just come to mind. But you, you see, you see how culture and language can then influence each other. And again, not right. to the point that it controls you, because in those languages, you can certainly leave that bit off. You'll get some weird looks if you do. Um, and of <laughs> course, if you speak English and you're not required to do that, but you could do that every time. I mean, think about an academic paper where you do have to have a footnote for everything that you're stating, right? So that's certainly possible. All those options are available in every language, but some languages decide that that is super important and needs to be there all the time, and some don't. So this is kind of the interesting way that language and culture can interrelate, and of course that evolves over time, and it changes over time. I don't think this has anything in particular to do with Russian culture, and I'm certainly not claiming that it does, but I remember learning at one point from a a friend in undergrad who was taking Russian and who was sort of despairing at all of the verbs, because there's a lot of complex verbs that have to do with very nuanced actions. And so there was a verb case for to arrive somewhere crawling. (laughs) And so I just that kind of it's it's that kind of detail that english doesn't necessarily have at least not i can say to arrive there crawling but it's not wrapped up in a single word or this a single conjugation of a verb it's yeah it's um, very hard to learn a language that's so different from your own but it's super cool to compare and contrast one of my yeah. professors used to always say that language does best what speakers do most Right. And so this is the idea that things get encoded because people are just doing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I had um, when I was studying Arabic, like having the sort of six sort of 
flavors of verbs. And so depending on what you do to, and that's, that's something that was part of Acadian too, of um, just like you have infixes and suffixes and prefixes and all of these things that completely change the value of the verb. Um, and it was really. Does an infix get shoved in the middle of a word? Yeah. 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 And uh, so of course the first time I learned Acadian, I was learning it using a German textbook when I didn't know German. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so that was additionally difficult, but it's, yeah, it's really, um, do you, are any of the languages that you speak uh, or read or understand those heavily nuanced languages? Well, every language is heavily nuanced. The question well, is, no, just, so, I'm sorry, is like, what's, <laughs> what's the structure, right? Right. How what did you call structure? those? Evidentiary? Evidential. Um, Evidential. Systems. Okay. No, I don't. The two languages I'm working on right now do not do that. Um, well, Katsu has a particle that just means I heard, right? And that's okay. that. That's pretty common. Some some yeah. evidential systems are really simple. It may just be one particle, like I heard, but some can be super complicated. Like I saw some stuff, and then I thought about it, and then I was able to piece <laughs> together that the you know it could be quite. I deduced. Yes, right. It could be very complex. So that's that's is what that's what fascinates me is all the different ways we can come up to describe the same kind of event, right? Yeah. Wild. But, you know, English does stuff, too, that not all languages do. So, for example, we must, every time we mention a noun, every time we talk about a thing, we have to make clear whether there is one or more than one of them. Mm-hmm. Right? This is, one, one dog, some yeah, dogs. Right? Yeah. Some languages don't do that. Chinese doesn't do that. Mandarin doesn't do that. I can just say, so it's just, I saw dog. I see dog. I saw dog. And... Unless it's super important to my story, I can, you know, if I want to specify how many I can, but if not, I just don't have to go there. Oh, it's always very important. How many dog? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so this is something that seems very weird to people who come from Mandarin to English, where you got to always be counting things, always be noticing how many <laughs> there are of things. ABC, always be counting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that no, that's really that's a really great point that you make of stuff that you know as a native English speaker, um, something that I found strange, but in every language I've learned, nearly like this is something that is the case for it. In English, you can't have you have to say like for like nominative uh, clauses. I think that's what it is. Like where you say like something is something. If you're saying like I I am sleeping, you have to have that pronoun. Uh, right. Rather than just having the, you can't just say I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping because, like, it's implied because the 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 tense of the verb implies me, uh, I am, and so when I learned any other language, is sort of like I was adding, I was sort of inserting pronouns and sort of subject subject pronouns in my sentences when I didn't need them. And so my instructors were always telling me, like, are you trying to emphasize the fact that you are the one doing this? Because it isn't necessary. <laughs> and so that's something that I always found weird, but I was a native speaker of the sort of outlier there. Right. Well, th I have this problem. I spend a lot of time doing work in, in China and I use Mandarin and Mandarin is a language where you, you don't state the subject if it's clear, you state it once and then you leave it out for the next 50 sentences until you want to change the subject. And Kazo is the same way. And so I, 
I will listen to you know Mandarin and my Mandarin's decent, but I've listened to Mandarin speakers and sometimes just get lost. Like, who are we talking about now? <laughs> but but they know, and they're that's because listeners are trained to pay more attention to that data when it comes by because you know you're only going to get it every once in a while, and then you need to file it away. Whereas in English, you must have a subject in every sentence, and so it just keeps getting fed to you again and again, and so you don't worry about it. And you say trained, it's just it's not like actively trained and sat down and taught not no. necessarily it's just by being a native yes. speaker of that language you just exist within that that knowledge right. and it's and it comes naturally right. right so tell us more about well first of all tell us about endangered languages in general and and the endangered language crisis that you mentioned yeah. and then about the specifically the languages that you work with okay so um enda- languages are endangered like species maybe more so this- the Siberian tigers of language. Yeah. So, so about, well, so there, there have always been people like me who do field work who go out and, and work with communities and learn about their languages and, and document them, et cetera. Um, but there are a couple of really famous ones who in 1990 basically put out a call to action to the entire linguistics field to say, this is get, situation is getting worse. More and more languages are disappearing. Um, and by the way, most, well, I would say ju- almost half of the world's languages don't have writing systems even today. So when the last speaker dies, it's gone, right? Okay. There's no way to go, you know, find out what that language is all about if the last speaker is gone. There's no trace, There's of, no it. trace of it. There's no skeletal remains, right? Writing system has only been around for 10,000 years. It's only, you know, roughly, you know, 50 some have percent of languages today have writing systems. So this is a, it's a problem if languages disappear. And so, this sort of rejuvenated the whole fieldwork part of linguistics because for a number of decades, people sort of stopped valuing it so much. Um, so it attracted a lot more people to linguistics like myself. Uh, we sort of rejuvenated, re- re-professionalized the whole way we do this. Um, there's more funding sources. We have more training. We have ethics. We have journals. We have conferences. There's, it's now a, a subfield in itself. Uh, of linguistics, <laughs> and we do it because languages are disappearing. That call to action um, had a, a back-of-the-envelope calculation of what the rate of disappearance was, what the rate of language oh, depth no. was. And it's a range because it's you know back-of-the-envelope. But the idea was that 50, 50 to 90, 90% of the world's languages – will disappear in the next 100 years. Well, that's so depressing. So even if you go with this conservative number, 50%. That's that of all, it's, that's not 50 languages, 50%, 50% of so the world's languages. That translates into roughly one language disappearing every two weeks. Uh, Which like also like requires us to like keep, like bear in mind that that means that there are that many languages. Like there are enough right. languages. Yeah. For... So we think there are about oh 7,000 languages in the world, give or take. We don't really quite know, but something like that. Um, the the top, the tw- top 20 languages in terms of population of speakers mm-hmm. accounts for mm-hmm. 50% of the world's population. Oh, and then just everybody else's languages are disappearing. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and so you've got a lot oh, of communities that boy. only have, I mean, some still have millions, but some just have thousands. You know, think about mm-hmm. hunter-gatherer tribes. At most, their their populations reach about a hundred tops. 
Right. So you can have communities that only have, you know, a few dozens of speakers. Um, That could be okay if they're still teaching their children the language, if it's still being taught to the future generations. What's happening, though, is more and more parents are not teaching their children the language for a variety of complicated reasons. And then that means that you find instances like the the young, like in Dawoodi, the language I look at in Pakistan, the youngest speaker we found is age 20, but he's an anomaly. Most speakers are in their late 30s or older. So they haven't been teaching their children the language for several generations, right? So you can then follow through as that 35-year-old you know, gets older and older and older in 50, 60 years, that language perhaps may no longer be spoken unless the community decides to change that trajectory. Yeah. Many communities, as you can imagine, most of these communities are endangered, not just their language, but their culture, maybe their way of life. Often they are minorities uh, with no economic or social power in whatever countries they live in. And so sometimes just to get by, just to live, they have to abandon their languages. And of course, we can't fault them for that at all. Right. But sometimes they don't really know that they have choices. They don't really know that they could actually speak their local language and master the their regional or, ma- or national language and just be bilingual. Um, you know, we have a, a bias in the U.S. about being bilingual, like somehow that's bad or impossible or too difficult for your brain or, you know, it will hold children back or something like that. But those beliefs exist all around the world. That is the opposite of Ex- true, by the yes, way. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All, There's plenty of room in that brain. All sorts of studies show that kids actually will be smarter and and will deal with cope with life better if they speak more than one language because they'll have more than one viewpoint about life right yeah man i wish i spoke more languages than english you still can you still i know yeah i thank you that's very encouraging Um, and so, but you said like that attitude isn't a, a purely American attitude. No, it's, no. it's something yeah, worldwide. That, yeah. So in the village where I work in, in China, um, the, the, where they speak Kadzo, I mean, kids are still learning it, but here's the thing. School is all in Chinese. Kadzo is only spoken in a single village. There's no writing system. So there's no, there's no comic books. There's no radio. Everyone has smartphones. Even the little ladies in the village have smartphones. They're texting in Chinese, right? So, so they're using Kadzo less and less, but still it's spoken every day in the village. But all the parents teach their kids Chinese first because mm. kids have to do well in school. And um, and there's there's no Kadzo in school whatsoever, right? So kids still hear Kadzo around them if they grow up in the village. So they learn it, but they're learning it less well, okay? Okay. But so I'm in the village. I'm, you know, I lived there for a year. They know I'm there documenting the language. They think this is a really good thing. They're happy I'm there. Um, I invent a writing system that myself and my native speaker assistant can use to transcribe the language. Um, and we, you know, I tried to get the village elders interested in adopting the language in the writing system because this could help kids keep their codzo up. They could text in it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so they're intrigued and I, I've I've I did, I don't know, given them three or four different PowerPoint presentations over the years about the writing system, but no one's fully, no one's super motivated to to learn it or try to teach it to anybody. Um, they know their language is disappearing. I mean, that's why they like that I'm there and I'm doing this work. But but they're but on the other hand, they got their lives to lead, and that's not really 
top of mind. And in fact, I had people, parents come up to me in the village and say, could you teach my kids English while you're here? <laughs> like, okay, we're so not interested in Kanzo. We're not even interested in Chinese. Now we just want our kids to learn English. Yeah. And for very logical reasons. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Um, I can see why. So, so this is the challenge. And, and so one of the things that we find in many places around the world now is this, that people are sort of letting their languages, they're not exactly abandoning them, but they're just letting them erode. They're letting them sort of fade away because they've got other pressing needs and in their lives and in the situations where they live. Now, some places, including even in China, there are um, minority languages that are spoken by many, many people, and they have some socioeconomic and political clout. They do uh, teach their language in some schools. There are writing systems. There are media. So that does exist in places. But for many, you know, if you're just one village, I mean, the village where they speak Kadza was 5,600 people, which seems large if you until you consider that the province of Yunnan, where they where they are, has 56 million inhabitants. Wow! wow yikes! Wow, All yeah. right, right. So the single village, and even in the village you might not be able to carry out all of your daily business in Kadzo. There are a couple of medical clinics there, which is great. Not all the doctors are from the village. Some of them are from outside. So you have to speak to them in Mandarin. There's an right. open air village that is there every day. Some of those merchants come from neighboring villages. They don't speak Kadzo. So the government building, you know, where the, you know, you go in and you pay your taxes and you complain about this and that. Some of those folks are from outside the village and don't speak Kadzo. So even if you live your whole life in Kadzo, in the village where they speak Kadzo, you may still have to speak Chinese sometimes. Set aside the fact that you've got a TV at home and a VCR and you go on the web and all of that is in Mandarin. Right. Mm -hmm. right? So you could just see that this is shrinking more and more. And more and more kids are going to school, which is fantastic. Elementary school in the village, but it's all in Mandarin. Junior high, you got to go to a boarding school where you're not going to be maybe one or two kadzo among hundreds of other kids. Yeah. And then right. if you go beyond, I mean, in China, only junior high is obligatory. If you manage to do so well that you get to go to high school and maybe even college beyond that, you're not coming back to the village. Here's not. And so you're going to marry a spouse who likely is not kadzo, speaks no kadzo. Kadzo will not be the language in your home. You may be fluent, but your spouse or your kids will not be fluent or know it, any of it at all, right? And this is a just a general process that just happens if, with, unless people are interfering in that process. Is it similar right. for, is this, um, I'm not taking from this that this is universal for communities with endangered languages, but is it is it similar uh, for the uh, community in Pakistan that you that you work with? Like yeah, speak yeah I mean, these are some very, very typical um, mechanics that are going on in all kinds of communities. In Pakistan, um, on top of that, you had the issue is that traditionally this, the, the Dawoodi speakers um, were considered to be the lowest caste. So there used to be a caste system, uh, an official caste system. Now it's unofficial, but still kind of exists. So they were at the bottom rung of the ladder and they were pro prohibited from, you know, leaving town, moving anywhere else, moving outside of their particular neighborhood. They could only perform certain tasks in the community. Um, and so they were just super branded as, you know, the lowest of the low. And their language was one of the markers that 
you know, everyone looked at and said, see, you're not, you're not one of us higher castes. So is this, is this a language that evolved within, like, did the caste system exist first and then the language arose within this lower level of the caste? Or was this a group that became a low caste that was already different because of their language? Well, so the caste system in that area goes back, I don't know, how many, 10, I don't know, how many thousands, 10,000 years. I mean, it's super old. Um, so, so hard to tease those things apart. This particular, so the, the speakers are Dawoodi are related to the, um, the Roma of Europe. Okay. The group mm-hmm. that formerly was known as gypsies, but we don't like that term anymore. So right. they, that whole group migrated from India, mm-hmm. uh, West throughout, um, you know, Eurasia, Europe, et cetera. So different groups stopped in different places. So they stopped in Northern Pakistan. Okay. And were traditional musicians and, and metal workers, which for whatever reason was considered to be low caste. Um, So, but they were, I think one of the reasons why they left any in the first place is because they were not, they didn't like the caste they were in. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, and so that's fair. I don't know how to tease apart those things, but in the Dawoodi speakers in Northern Pakistan were always low caste. That was their position. And of course okay. they themselves had pride about who they were and what they did, but in the larger community, right. They were not in a great place and mm-hmm. were prevented from doing anything about it. That's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, Not a very cherry topic. Let me say. but But it's really, but it's, it is really it's very interesting because it's something that, you know, we think about, like, if we just think about the archaeological record and we look at, like, the movement of people. Right. And um, and so movement of people to and fro in sort of southwestern Asia is very important to a lot of people as sort of like who arrived (laughs) when and where and by what means. And so we we think about like we think about that by looking at you know, like ceramic typologies, or we look at, um, analysis of, of like teeth, uh, you know, like isotope analysis, figure out where they grew up and where they move. But like what you're talking Mm -hmm. about is a completely different 
and like very important and sort of very kind of obvious like way that people would be different or sort of an impact on a community, whether they are the ones moving or the ones being moved in among. And that's something that, um, I didn't think about as uh, when I was doing archaeological research, but it's something that would be very real and very, um, have like real ramifications for people's lived experience. Well, it had had ramifications for culture and how culture developed and for language. It's just that unfortunately, um, language leaves no trace and culture leaves some trace ceramics and, you know, bones and buildings, but we don't get the, we don't get to, see the lived experience you kind of have to yeah. extrapolate that out but we can see stuff like that i mean we see traces of it today I mean, we see hunter gatherers today and and what they're dealing with right so yeah. um so this all has a has a ha, has an impact has an impact on the on the vitality of languages and of course languages always ha, have always come and gone through history languages have disappeared throughout history we know that's the case but we do feel as linguists as experts that this process is speeding up as um, nation states have evolved, as globalization has increased, um, and and it's just put so much pressure on these small communities that are are not are, are just tiny, they're not even necessarily even cogs. They're just tiny, tiny floating islands in these seas of larger forces. Wow. Um, so this yeah. is what we're trying to fight against. So one of the things so on the linguistic side, we're trying to just document we're trying to preserve these languages so um you know with recordings video and audio recordings just to make a record this is what this language sounded like this language has existed in time no matter what happens in the future we now have these records and we can protect them and preserve them into on into the future then we also can analyze those languages and start to understand how they worked and why they worked the way they did and see how they what that said about their their communities and their cultures and and um, the things that happened to them and the things they went through and all of those kinds of things. And, yeah. and we've now developed tools for helping communities maintain and preserve and revitalize their languages if they want to do those things. Um, so there is, a, there is a, happy, there's a happy ending for some of these languages. Um, but still, for most languages, they're, they're in trouble. Okay, well. That's that's really helpful. That's really helpful to think about um, and to sort of fit it in among other things that we talk about here on The Dirt. Um, so my next question is a kind of a thorny <laughs> one. And I know enough to know that nobody agrees on like literally any aspect of it. Um, you. <laughs> but, but we want to know your take. Um, how old do you think language is? Oi. Because you said you said sort of at the beginning of our conversation that a lot of the thinking that we do every day doesn't involve language, which like first of all blows my mind. But right, how do I think without yeah. language? How do I know what I'm thinking? Yeah. What's what's my brain doing? <laughs> and so, um, what, what, like what? How, <laughs> what? Chris, what? Well, see, if you had asked me this 20 years ago, we would have had a pretty tidy answer. But then oh, yeah? you people blow us out of the water. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry. It's right? the hyoid bone. So, yeah. So let's, so let, we can maybe, uh, in a short version, we can think about what we used to think was this, right? So first of all, as we've established, language leaves no trace. So we, mm-hmm. we can't actually go look at that thing. But one thing that language is, is symbolic expression. Okay. So words are symbols. 
and we use that to mean things, right? So we can right. look at other types of symbolic expression that does leave a trace. And what, so one of the earliest forms of that are the various cave paintings that we find in Europe, for example, right? Yes. So the idea was that, well, if a culture can do cave paintings with symbolism, and then we also can see that they have ritual because they have grave goods and stuff like that, then you might say, well, they likely had language because they're already using symbolic expression. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a proxy, right? So that was the on board. So yeah, far. so this was the this was the this is the very short version, right? But so that would that gets us back to and you know the dates better than I do, but what a hundred thousand years ago, something like that. So the best, uh, sure, with the best we could say was it's at least a hundred thousand years old human language. Of course, back then we sort of felt that only Homo sapiens had human language or human-like language. And so that's the only piece we needed to worry about. And that kind of seemed as, as good as we could do. Then the Neanderthals kind of got a new lease on life, right? They hired, I don't know, <laughs> I think they hired a PR agency. Yeah, they, much better yeah they, had a, they had a renaissance. Yeah. So now we look at the Neanderthals and we say, hey, wait, they're doing all this symbolic expressive stuff too. I guess maybe we have to say they have languages, but then some people aren't ready to go there because, you know, there's nanotals have their own stigma. Um, I mean, you can be extinct for hundreds of thousands of years and still be have a stigma from being disadvantaged. Yeah, right? So rude. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad truth about humans, right? And our species. Yeah. So, um, but then, as uh-huh. you just mentioned, so a hyoid bone was found of a Neanderthal. Um, and this is one of the little bones that holds the larynx in place halfway down your throat. And that's hugely important because human language can't work unless your larynx is halfway down your throat, like you find in humans. Chimps and gorillas have larynxes that are really high up in their throat. And that equipment mm-hmm. does not allow them to make human sounds, humans' consonants right. and vowels, right? So finding out that Neanderthals are the same equipment as humans suggest that they could have had human-like language. I don't know that, I mean, some people just say, yeah, they had it. Other people are not ready or tiptoeing up to that fact. They had the anatomical equipment to be able to produce the types of sounds that would be required for a spoken Exactly. And we see in other parts of their lives that they were using symbols. Mm -hmm. So this suggests a culture very much like ours and anatomy like ours. So it seems like maybe they had language. And then- just when we thought we could maybe grab, put our heads around that, <laughs> suddenly we find out through genetic research that humans actually have some Neanderthal DNA. And then we find out there was a third species, the Denisovans, that we don't know anything about, but somehow we have some nope. of their DNA as well. And then so you got three species that you would have thought maybe were so separate that they could not intermix. Now we know they did. And now this- But you don't have to talk to do that. Well, no. I mean, just some candlelight now, green CD can get you pretty far, (laughs) but maybe, maybe they had some kind of communication, right? So then if you believe that all three of these species had something like a human language, maybe not, if you're not willing to concede that it was exactly like human language, but (laughs) something similar, some simplified form of, this suggests that the common ancestor then might have had that or some forerunner of it. So if then if, if that's your 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 data point, your goalpost, then again, you know the dates better, but is that what, 500,000 years? Around 600, yeah. And then, uh, okay, six, then let's just yeah. point out that we've not even begun to think about Homo habilis, right? You're making tools. No, I mean, they made tools, yeah. Are they just, I mean, monkeys have tools today and they show their the next generation how to make them just by show and tell. 
Of course, they're not mm-hmm. thinking our heads, they're using a twig, right? But so it's not imperative that you have language to pass on technology. But on the other hand... Well, if you look at the tools that Homo habilis was making, they're not, not to put down Homo no, habilis, no. but they're not, they're not all that refined. Like yeah. it's the old one tool technology and it's basically chunky cobbles with a few pieces smashed off of them to make a, a sharp cutting surface, which again, that's more than, it's more than nothing. Right. Well, so if you're it, assuming not, that each generation didn't reinvent that technology, if you're assuming that the technology is transmitted. Right. But you could show and tell yes. someone how to make that kind of tool. Yes, you could. Um, but pretty also effectively. communication would, would facilitate that process also. Yeah, of course. And so yes. <laughs> that raises the, the question. And of course, why do things evolve? Well, they evolve because they're useful. So maybe language was a, early language was happening with Homo habilis because they needed to explain how to make that arrowhead better the next time. No, you're doing that wrong. (laughs) Hit it, hit it it this way. So as somebody who knows very little about language and knows very little about um, like earlier. Yeah. So I, so is it something that like, is the idea that possibly this is um, developed in, in concert and that could like That's spoken communication be sort of the game changer that they were able to like better strategize and sort of, you know, have like a bit of like a Congress about like, <laughs> like have a little summit on like, here's how we, here's how, how do you want to hunt? Today? Here's how we make stone tools Here's how we, here are like, you know, innovations in and stone tools they've got their little you know they're oh, like yeah, they have a monthly meeting they yeah. have their to like check in exactly the, the technology subcommittee meets and decides that they Oof. they have a <laughs> they have an overhead projector because it's <laughs> old-timey technology yeah. f- well i mean it's just a fireplace and some cave yeah, exactly. <laughs> i mean i don't really know that- and no one really knows but one of the theories just about evolution in general right is one of the, the questions is human brains got much much larger than than our primate cousins and what mm-hmm. drove that and some people think that first the brain just got big for some unknown reason and then we had all this brain power and decided to use it but other people say well the brain got bigger because we started to try to think about more complicated stuff or solve more complicated problems and that forced you know that 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 created the need that may have driven for you know brains to get more complex and then skulls to get larger to common etc etc right so, so there's a chicken and egg process here even though mm-hmm. no chickens and eggs were involved in this process i don't know well and i guess the bottom line is the new genetic information has just blown the barn doors off of all our previous theories about language and how old it may be and we just don't know it's i mean on the one hand it's frustrating because we have no answer on the other hand it's super fascinating to be to as an outsider to witness all of this data coming in yeah. That's really changing what we know about the world and about our distant past. I find that fascinating. Yeah. And so language Definitely. is in the mix there somewhere. We just don't know. I mean, I, and I, I, I don't, it's, I'm not a specialist in this part of linguistics. So therefore, I, like you, I can uh, speculate all I want. <laughs> and, and all the angry uh, uh, social media will come to you, not me. So Yeah, exactly. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yep. free yep. about that. The dirt podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, exactly. Hit us up. We'll get um, the tweets. So, so, I mean, you know, but next week we might find some, hear about some new thing that really shapes a better answer. So um, that would be great. Stay tuned, right? It's like, and you yeah. got you're the first on it. So <laughs> no. yeah, I've got a, yeah. got a Google alert for it. So yeah. Yeah. 
you know, of all the updates that we've had in 2020, this one would be welcome, frankly. Yeah. Uh, just anything yeah. that's not yeah, terrible. Exactly. Well, jumping off of that. So we did an episode on historical linguistics. Yes, I enjoyed it. And oh. Amber, did, oh, Thanks. thank goodness. <laughs> and Amber did a really excellent job of explaining things to me. But it has since left my brain slightly. And so what is syntax? So let me just say, I enjoyed that, that episode, but I felt like you both needed some aftercare. And, <laughs> oh, and you, I didn't, boy, I didn't yeah. really know. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out to you in the past. Cause I just, I felt Thank like you. <laughs> that maybe that you, you were slightly scarred from that whole <laughs> dive into. Not scarred, just, just, we wish we knew more, I think. <laughs> And it was, yeah, it's just one of those like conference. It was, I was, so I've been like trying to get Anna on board with like Lovecraft lately. And so it was like sort of a, a Lovecraftian experience of just like <laughs> staring into the void and just the, the void being full of, of linguistics. The void looked back. Yeah. And I'm just like, I can't possibly understand this. Like, there is so much. Yeah. Well, and also not all of it's user friendly. Um, oh, really? I gotta say, what? No. I, this may shock you as coming from a related field, but uh, yeah. Is that, Amber, is that where you read that thing where the first line was, don't panic? Yes. <laughs> it was the first line of a textbook. <laughs> and it wasn't Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, an excellent way to begin. Um, so. <laughs> we we panicked though, so. Yeah. Help us not panic. Um, and, you know, it's you'd completely expect that a, a field that studies language would revel in the the ability and chance to invent lots of jargon that no right. one else will understand. Um, and I don't even understand all of it. And I, I and frankly, it makes me cranky a lot of the times. Um, I, I avoid a lot of jargon and, and that makes me very non-academic um, in that way. My, my 20 years in the that. business world, I'm like, Cut to the chase, dude. If it can't fit in a one-page memo, then I don't think it's worth my time. Um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> so what is syntax? Okay, here's the basic of what syntax is. Syntax is our fancy term for how we combine words in a phrase or sentence. Okay. To provide meaning. To provide meaning. That's the understood. Yes. To provide meaning. Yes. yes. Because in real life, okay. you only say stuff because you want to communicate something. Right. So if I said, like, dog barn ran out, that is words in a sequence, but it doesn't necessarily communicate the right meaning. Well, you could, I mean, we understand what you're saying because we were, our, we, you know, our brains are gymnasts and we can uh, rapidly deconstruct that. But so, yeah, that phrase does not, uh, does not obey the, uh, syntactic rules of English, but could very well obey the syntactic rules of some other language if you just translate it. Turns out I'm fluent in you, something I didn't know. Yeah, like exactly. If you were doing like a Google Translate, no yeah. shots to yeah. Google, but like just where like a, I mean, yeah. just like one to one translating the words exactly. in that order. Okay. Exactly. So that's what syntax okay. is. And it's one one piece of the puzzle about how language gets put together. But of course, there are people who specialize in nothing but that. Wow. And there are lots of different camps <laughs> and theories, and they're the ones who are creating a lot of that not-so-user-friendly stuff. Mm, perhaps we can leave that there then. <laughs> well, 
I, I have a kind of follow on question to okay. that. I was like talking about people who have like, you know, camps and theories and sort of hyper specific specialties and things. Um, this actually might be a thorny question too. Are there things in linguistics that are, are there like natural laws to linguistics? Like, is there anything that is sort of objectively known or like innate? Is, yeah. Or is it, is it largely the product of sort of, um, theory and just sort of how like in archaeology we look at the past and there are like very there aren't many things that we can say with absolute certainty because we cannot we don't have a time machine to like go and look at it and be like here's what's tr-, like because it also is like very subjective because it's human experience and and it's all about like perspective and positionality is that something that also affects linguistics or are there parts of linguistics that are more like just math or something that is more kind of like formulaic or innate or yeah, just sort of so law well, it, yeah it depends what you look at so if you're studying so for example i wrote a a book-length grammar of Kadzo, right? So, you know, I spent several years recording zillions of people and transcribing them and studying how these structures work and what they mean with the help of speakers. And so I have described how this language works and it is factual, right? It's based based Mm -hmm. on actual language I heard and how the speakers explain things to me and and how it works. And um, I think it's as close to fact as you can get. If you look at how people... How in English we make our consonants and vowels, for example, how we use our vocal apparatus to do that, that's – we know exactly how that works. Okay. Okay? So some stuff, yeah, is really pretty cut and dried. And you can look at any language that exists today and observe facts about them that are – you know, that we can all agree fit the facts that we're seeing, right? So that's true. But there are other parts of linguistics that um, are – are much less so. So whenever you start to try to understand what's happening in the brain with mm-hmm. language, we just don't know. We just don't know enough about the brain. Um, mm-hmm. e- even something like, so how does the word dog mean that fluffy critter who wags its tail in English? Like, how does mm-hmm. that work? How do we know that that's what that means? And how do we how do we connect meaning with this random... A syllable. We got theories, but again, we don't really know. That's stuff that inside inside the brain, and we don't know. In fact, that's in, that's stuff that's happening in the synaptic. I don't even know enough to explain what's happening. That's stuff that's somehow happening in some chemical process in your brain. Maybe to have no clue about how those are linked, right? So that stuff unclear. If you're looking, this is like the stereotypical conversation that movie stoners have. <laughs> yeah. Why does dog mean dog? Yeah, exactly. So there are people, that's their career. Um, they, their whole career is like they're stoned. Um, and they're maybe <laughs> actually. Um, so, so things like that. And obviously, so historical linguistics, where we are trying to figure out what happened in the past, also you have to uh, agree, you know, take on the same caveats that you do with archaeology and mm-hmm. anthropology, right? Because you're, you have a, this is your best guess, you know, it's your best stab at what this thing might have been mm-hmm. like, but no one, no one ag- ever believes that that's exactly right. So the, the, the ancestor language of English and a bunch of European languages, proto-Indo-European has been studied a lot, been tinkered with a lot. And we have a really good consensus 
um, you know, given how cantankerous historical linguists are, that there's a general consensus about the solidity of that hypothesis is amazing. And so that's been constructed with like a whole host of vocabulary and the grammar and like you can, you know, things have been written in Proto-Indo-European, et cetera, and people make recordings of it, but no one knows what it really was like or what it sounded like or that what we actually have decided it might have been like is actually true. And no linguist will tell you that that they have done that. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. So you told us about your, you know, unconventional path. <laughs> um, and so academia might seem like the conventional path for somebody with a linguistics degree. But for our listeners who are interested, um, that maybe that's what they want to do, or maybe that's what they might want to major in. What else can you do with linguistics or you a degree do, in it? Yeah, you could do a number of things. So by l- let's just define academia. So yeah, of course, mo- many people who get PhDs in linguistics end up teaching PhDs in linguistics or master students or whatever. But um, there are a lot of other things in education that that a knowledge of linguistics could help with. So if you're teaching any kind of language, whether it's English as a second mm-hmm. language, which is a huge industry around the world, or you're teaching Japanese mm-hmm. as a second language or whatever, knowledge of linguistics is really helpful for that. Um, there are um, a, there are things that are sort of academic but sort of medical. So speech pathologists, for example, people who help people with okay. with speech um, problems or issues, um, they need to know how language works in order to help those folks. And then you've got psycholinguists who study and neurolinguists who study how language works in the brain, sort of really on a, on a very on a physiological level. And so they may be working on how to help stroke victims overcome some brain damage that affected the parts that deal with language, right? So that stuff, they need to know about how language works too. Um, A big, big sort of fairly recent um, direction where linguists go is technology, right? So your favorite search engine cannot function unless there are some (laughs) linguists in the background deciding how words work together and what new words need to be accounted for and what you meant when you misspelled that word, right? That's linguists Mm -hmm. doing that stuff. Um, Things that deal with uh, spoken language and technology, so speech recognition or text-to-speech technologies, these all require um, people who understand how spoken language works and then how you're going to try to reproduce that through some machine. 
machine translation. You mentioned Google Translate, right? Which has its Mm -hmm. pros and cons, right? That's a big field because we all wish we could do that. Just press a button and talk to anyone around the world. Lots of work being done by that. You need linguists who who can map concepts from one language to another. All your artificial intelligence stuff, like, you know, you're not getting any answers from Siri or Alexa unless there's some linguists in the mix helping Siri oh. and Alexa figure out what that, how to deal with that. All this techn- a lot of this technology comes from California, where, we, where some of us are, um, and people who mainly speak West, the Western dialect of American English. If you're in the Deep South, Siri and Alexa may not work quite as well for you. Siri doesn't work very well for me with mm. the accent that I have. I, I have trouble with some of the like voice recognition things and yeah, so my, a my lot family definitely yeah. has trouble. Yeah. A lot of work to be done. And then there, there's, a, I mean, there's a whole subfield of linguistics called computational linguistics, where you use comp- computational things to work, to, to do some academic stuff and non-academic stuff with English. So that's kind of a broad thing, but, but tech, the technology companies are hiring people not with technology backgrounds, but just with linguists. I mean, I have undergrad students and master's students who get hired by these companies to come in and help them figure out how to do this stuff. And of course, language is always changing. So it's not like you can set up your search engine, you know, in, in 2003 and you're done. Right. Right. New hundreds of new languages are flooding into language every second. Um, and so you got to stay, stay on top of all of that stuff. So that's a big and growing field. Um, and then there's some some more, um, I would say, niche directions, but are really fascinating too. So lexicography, which is putting together dictionaries. So they still exist. Dictionaries still exist. Um, They're just moving online. So you got to have people to figure out what words to put in, what words to take out. Um, Is this this word everyone's using, but is it ready to put it in? Is this just slang or is this now permanent? Who's using (laughs) it, right? There's all that kind of study. Um, What is a yeet? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I just got it. That listed on some homework that I got, and I don't, I don't know what that is yet. I have to go, I have to go look that up. Um, so uh, I, you know, I try to be down with the lingo for the kids, but it's it's hard. Um, and then the last, the last career is also kind of niche and often is academic, but not necessarily. It's forensic linguistics. So this is language work that overlaps with sort of the criminal legal justice system. So for example, if someone gets kidnapped, God forbid, and they leave ransom notes or they leave recorded phone calls with ransom information, you might call in a forensic linguist to study that language to see if that gives you any clues about a person might be. You can't identify an individual, but you might be able to say, oh, they have this accent or this dialect, or they have this funny grammatical construction or something like that. Um, I also know linguists who have been called into, let's say, uh, legal cases about prejudice against some uh, ethnic group or um, social group. And then let's say maybe your boss's text messages are analyzed. Um, the language is analyzed to see if your boss somehow has, has a bias, maybe conscious or unconscious towards some okay. type of person, right? So so forensic wow. linguists get called in for that. The ones I know are actually in academia, but they get called on that as kind of a side gig. But I don't know, maybe the FBI has some folks who do that. I have no idea. But there are different ways to go with linguistics. You don't have to end up you know, being me. Um, there are lots <laughs> of other ways to go. Um, and we will link to this on our show notes, but if listeners are interested and also check out the Linguistic Society of America, uh, which is linguisticsociety.org. And there is 
a series of pages that sort of is what can I do with linguistics? What even is linguistics? And uh, yeah, it's just a, a a resource for you to go back to. Yeah, it's a good resource. That's our oh. our national um, linguistics organization for all of all of us, whether we're academic or not. So they have lots of good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So Amber and I have talked about this probably too much, but in archaeology, there's there's so many things that we see in popular media and just in sort of people's perception of archaeology that grind our gears. So given that we have have you and we have this platform, are there any misconceptions about linguists or linguistics that you would like to clear up? And and is there anything about what you do that you'd especially like people to know about? Well, so first of all, linguistics is almost never portrayed in popular media. So uh, we're yeah. a little bit envious that you guys even have something to complain about. Um, <laughs> although I will say well, the film Arrival, but, the Arrival, actually uh-huh. decent. Linguistics, that's field work, right? They're they're trying yeah. to communicate with a, a community that no one's ever talked to before. So that was a that was a good one. But there we don't have an Indiana Jones in linguistics, you know, in there's no media yeah, French. Could be worse. No movie franchise there. Um but there are a couple of um things that I would just Indiana Jones and the Oxford comma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the evidential system. Um <laughs> The there are a couple of things that I think is handy for lay people to understand because you know I talk to lay people even my own family don't really understand what it is I do they you, ask me the do same you call them lay people yes hello lay <laughs> <Yeah>. people <laughs> they, they you know so first of all the general term the linguist is generally understood out there as just someone who speaks lots of languages so mm-hmm. every time I see my more distant relatives they say how many languages do you speak even though the last time I explained to them that that's not really relevant and. <laughs> That's not what I do. Like, that's not. And they're like, what do you teach? You, I know you speak Chinese. So do you just teach Chinese all day? What is that what you? Ah. Um, <sighs> so there's that. Um, and and then don't get started on the fact that the military decided to name all of their translators linguists. Um, that's a different thing. Oh. They do great work, but it's not what I do. Uh, it's not what <laughs> linguists do. So, um, but one thing that that we all grow up with in grade school, junior high and high school is this notion that there is the right way to speak English, for example, and the wrong way, right? You have those teachers, right? Don't use a double negative. Don't use ain't. Don't end a sentence with a preposition. That's wrong. And so here's the thing. So linguists, (laughs) and this is, this is, I'm teaching an intro class this semester and we kick off the semester unlearning that behavior. Because for linguists, we see that as a prescriptivist approach, mm-hmm. you know, where you have this shalls and the shout nots. But as, as linguists, we want to be descriptivists, right? So right. we want to see, look around and say, well, how do people speak English? Hey, hey, look, you know, tens of millions of people in the United States use the word ain't. I guess I better write about that in my grammar. Otherwise, it'll be incomplete, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and to use a double negative, it doesn't not exist. <laughs> Perfectly right. Um, and the thing is, even using ain't, there are rules about how you use ain't. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not true. a random thing. There are rules. There are correct ways to use ain't and incorrect ways to use ain't. Every dialect has its own set of rules. Everything that conveys meaning is grammatical, pretty much. Mm-hmm. It's just maybe the rules are different than, let's say, the the standard variety that we're being force-fed in school. We all need to become bi-dialectal or tri-dialectal as opposed oh. to trying to force everyone to be mono-dialectal, which doesn't work, right? Because even yeah. my dialect, my 
dialect I was born into, we did not say ain't, but I still use that word. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> right. So you got to take off the judgy prescriptivist hat when you're mm-hmm. looking at language use around you and just sort of marvel at the variety and all the different ways there are to say stuff. And that relates to the other thing that we often see, and and especially if you read uh, the media, uh, the news media, is that people get all spun up about some new word that the kids are using or some some new expression <laughs> or what happened to the subjunctive and people go into panics. And, and oh, what did happen to the subjunctive? Yeah, it's disappearing. It's going. It's almost gone. I do, it, I do a survey every semester in my class and very few students are using the subjunctive. But language always changes. <laughs> language never doesn't change. I mean, the only way to stop a language from changing is to kill all the speakers. I don't recommend that. Obviously. Oh, no. Right? No. Language is always the dirt. That's not, that not the position yeah. the dirt holds. <laughs> nope. Nope. I, we all agree on that, that we have a consensus. So language is always changing and language will always change. And you did those that you, as a young person, did things that annoyed you know, your grandparents' generation and your grandchildren <laughs> are going to annoy you with what they're doing with language. And there's no way to stop it. And you shouldn't even try. Thank you so much for the the time that you spent with us sort of enlightening us. To, uh, to I feel so much smarter. I, I hope I brought a, a tiny shred of enlightenment. Oh, definitely. And so we're definitely gonna... we've got two more for you. Yeah. So okay. we want to wrap it up with the two questions that we ask all of our very special guests. And even though you said that many linguists don't feel like they're part of part of the anthropology family um you get to be for this <laughs> and so I, I you can answer good yes and we believe we that think too. you are yeah and so you can you can answer from your your subfield or from the wider anthropological field when you Whatever tell us hat you choose okay what is the best thing so your favorite thing about anthropology you probably know where I'm going to go. I'm going to say everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> just really everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I almost when I, you know, I was going back to school for linguistics, but I almost became an archaeologist briefly for a while there. I was like linguistics. And then I was like, what about archaeology? Linguistics, archaeology. I decided I was too old to roll around in the dirt. Um, literally. It's not, it's not, not great too for the old back. to yeah. roll around in the, the dirt pod dirt, certainly. Hey. Uh, but I look, hey. I just know myself and I, I knew that that wasn't really going to, be my thing. I mean, I do field work, but I do it at, at a desk in a chair, right? So, um, yeah, it's you know, it's easier. You get you gotta you gotta pick your battles, but um, yep. I really Lumbar support American. in your field work. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. Oof. I am interested in archaeology, all the finds. I'm interested in even in the wonky techniques. I'm fascinated by the genetic stuff that's coming out about uh, people migration. Um, I'm interested in cultures and how they develop and shape over time and how they have different views and how language fits it. Like really all, I, I like all of that stuff. I can't, I can't choose and you can't make me. Okay. We won't. It's okay. That's a <laughs> Thank you. beautiful answer. Thank you. Um, this one may be even harder though. It <laughs> tends to be for our guests. So if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment from history, prehistory or the history, the history of anthropology or linguistics itself, what would you choose? Uh, this is another one where I really would, say everything, but I already used that answer. So let me say this. So, so the speakers of Kadzo, the, the, the language that I study in China, they, there's, there's a bit of a historical mystery there because they are ethnic Mongolians. They are descended from the Mongolian troops that Kublai Khan brought to Southern China in the 1200s, but their language has, as far as we could tell, absolutely nothing to do with Mongolian whatsoever. 
What? What happened? Uh, well, that's so. Kublai Khan came in, conquered the country, started a new dynasty. Didn't last very long, about 120 years. And then all the Mongolians got thrown out. Yeah, they all got thrown out. So the story is among the villagers is that the the local leader who was about, you know, who had lived in a fort about, you know, a couple of miles from the village, he grabbed his family and his nearest and dearest, and they raced into the nearby um, marshy wetlands to hide out because there was all this anti-Mongolian um, stuff happening for you know dozens of years afterwards, and they stayed okay. there. That marshland dried up, but that's where they still are. But their their wives, I mean, you know, soldiers all came, but they came without wives, so they married local ladies who spoke local languages. So it seems that somewhere along the way those families switched to the local language and didn't stop speaking a Mongolian, but, or whatever Mongolic language they were speaking, but unclear how that happened, if it happened, when it happened, um, what was that process? Was it quick? Was it slow? Um, are there traces of Mongolian in Kadzo, Mary Berry deep somewhere? Don't think so, but maybe like, that's all a big mystery. And it would be cool to go back and sort of be able to see that whole development. Agreed. That's so interesting. A mystery. Ah, we live a, ling- a linguistry. Yes, <laughs> and a cultural mystery too. Yeah, definitely. Oh, this is so great! Thank you, Chris, so much for for oh, sharing all you. of that thank with you us for for uh, inviting me, and um, thanks for your podcast. As, as a, I'm a big fan, I listen to it every week, and um, it's where I get oh, some of my shucks. anthropology fix. Ah, oh, great! That's oh. that's lovely to hear. Is there anything that you would like to plug or uh, do you want people to find you on the internet? And if so, where can they do that? Yeah, I'm not on social media um, because Good choice. Because Good I, I don't like the internet. And I don't like people. <laughs> you respect yourself. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want to be a part of dumpster fire that is. Uh, uh, yeah, but yeah, so I, I don't do that. If you, I uh, teach at San Jose State University in California. So if you want to find me, you can find my email there. But um, I might have some uh, link suggestions for you guys. Um, we can yeah. chat about. Yeah, yeah send them our way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for listening. And we will be back in your ears very soon with new content, which you can find on all the places that you find your podcast. You found this one. You're listening. Good job. You did it. You can also leave us stars and reviews, which would be most appreciated. Yeah. And we're on social media. We're on Instagram at the dirt pod. We are on Twitter at mm-hmm. dirt, dirt podcast. podcast. You're doing so good, bud. <laughs> and we are on Facebook at the dirt podcast. And all of that is over on our website, along with every other episode we've done and our show notes for all of them at the dirtpod.com and the it yep the merch the merchpod.com <laughs> no sorry i got excited because now i'm thinking about new shirts uh yeah but you can find everything including merch and sponsored episode links at the dirtpod.com thanks everybody we love you hi bye This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.